www.stonesthrow.org. It is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for a Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, January the 21st, 2014. Last week, I spoke about the late Amiri Baraka. Ah, yes, we have lost another artist, one of the last literary saints of my generation. Gone to the ancestors, uh... I think of him, well, I think of him joining all those writers who struggled to bring some some light, some illumination to help people see. He was a seer, S-E-E-R, seer. Okay, yes, that darkness thing, <laughs> the, the dark birds of history coming at us. Bertolt Brecht told us that art is a hammer hammer with which to uh, wake up the people, you know, uh, to raise consciousness, to raise hell, as a matter of fact. I would add that um, poetry uh, is not a flower, it's not a luxury. Progressives, um, well, the progressive writers that I care about are always on the front lines, you know, Neruda, anyway, it's an ongoing struggle. To keep us human, these so-called culture wars are sometimes dismissed. Yes, people think it's irrelevant. Um, We all know, you know, the folks that insist that it's all about economic determinism and political battles and uh, electoral politics. Anyway... I guess I always think that it's not either or, it's both and, and call it propaganda if you like, but the voices of the artists, these are the things that soften people up, you know, get their heads turned in the right direction, get them psychologically set for change, ah. I guess the battle for our souls is no joke. Uh, yes. (laughs) How goes the battle for men's minds? I know that the battle for women's minds is often fought on the field of men's bodies. Anyway, you know, Charles Dickens and Harriet Beecher Stowe, they did change the societies in which they lived. Uh, uh, Charlie Dickens, uh, actually, he, 
He wrote about poverty, and he changed laws. Harriet Beecher Stowe, uh, they say, or Lincoln said, she was the little woman who started the Civil War. <laughs> Uncle Tom's cabin. The beat poet Diane de Prima tells us, there is no war but the war on the imagination. War on the imagination. If the hero, the mythic hero in our master narrative, if he's portrayed as a fighter, you know, as a, uh, as a warrior, they would like to say, then young people go out and get guns, you know. They don't get paint or pens. Uh, I think we should do what we used to say when I was a kid. We should put on a play. Susan Sontag did that in Kosovo. <laughs> think she put on uh, Waiting for Godot, right. Uh, I watched Amiri Baraka on TV last week. He was in a movie made by Warren Beatty. Uh, he had a prophetic role in the film Bulworth. Now, Bulworth is the name of a senator uh, played by Warren Beatty. This is a satire about today's political scene, kind of theater of the absurd. Warren Beatty, um, as the senator, as Senator Bulworth, discovers the power of truth. <laughs> of course, he's assassinated. Uh, we see in the end that it's the insurance company's representative, played by Paul Sorvino. Sorvino, pardon me, Paul Sorvino. <laughs> I love his daughter. Uh, she's the one, she was in... Uh, the Aphrodite, the Aphrodite movie, what was that called? The Aphrodite movie was... Anyway, it was the one in which uh, Woody Allen used a Greek chorus. <coughs> I love that. The Greek chorus. Uh, <coughs> anyway, I think, you know, I think that the the gist of it is that we're supposed to understand that it's the insurance companies behind the financial uh, sting, you know. Uh, in the last scene of Bullworth, this senator lies dead. He's been shot. And uh, the scene, it, if you look carefully, it recalls the assassination of MLK and several others. Baraka's role is that of a homeless man Mm, he appears here and there with this one and that one. He's usually crying out for the spirit, looking for the spirit of humankind. He says to the politician, to Bullworth, he says, you got to be a spirit, Bullworth. You can't be a, no ghost. Don't be a ghost. Be a spirit. Then he says, the spirit will descend in song. Right. Song. Mm -hmm. The side that had all the real songs. We know real change comes from the hearts and minds of the people, from their capacity to imagine a change, a new life, some resurrection. Now, back in the day, Amiri Baraka was one of those, uh, one of those at the center of what we now call the 60s, the 
the age the last time the world came alive, at least for me. If you were there back in the day, you remember what happened. Now, I believe, well, along with several others, <laughs> come to think of it, yes, I think we changed the world. I also believe that the backlash was nearly fatal. In 1980, when Reagan went to the White House, a lot of us lost hope. History happens. I think that our theater still, still fights the good fight. Tony Kushner's Angels in America gave me a real shot in the arm. Uh, it's not really a hammer. What it is, is it's a terrific analysis, great understanding of what has happened to America in the 20th century. Uh, you know how that is. At least we'll know what hit us. Uh, we'll become aware. Wake up, wake up, says the Buddha. Is is that the first step? I think so. Um, or maybe, maybe we've just created an age of irony. The Golden Globe Awards were symbolic this year. Not so much, well, the irony was rusty there, but, uh, you could read the omens, the trends, uh, <laughs> irony, irony, uh, there's basically a drift, drift to decadence and, perhaps irrelevance, but at the same time, there is a current, a new wave of wisdom. Some folks call it a paradigm shift. Yes, a paradigm shift. I love that phrase. <laughs> you know, somebody, some writer once said that the test of a first-rate intelligence is the capacity to hold opposing ideas in the mind and continue to function. Yes, so this is the best of times, worst of times, uh, all going on at the same time. Woody Allen, of course, uh, was a no-show at the Golden Globes. He never shows up at award ceremonies. Uh, I guess that proves something. Uh, he won the Cecil B. DeMille Lifetime Achievement Award, the the crown. He's now our culture's top dog, top filmmaker. Uh, <laughs> of course, uh, most of his pictures are set in Europe or England. Uh, Midnight in Paris. Um, oh, and the one about Rome. Yes, to Rome with love. Woody Allen's spirit does not always descend in song, although he sure tries. He is a master of his craft. He's nearly as old as Amiri Baraka. Yes. So he represents his generation. I would say, I would say he's about the most representative filmmaker in America, at least for the 20th century. His personal life is always brought up. People think that he mirrors the morals uh, of our time. I think that morality uh, is something else. Morality is the desire to lessen suffering in the world. Obviously, he did cause some suffering to Mia Farrow and a number of his children and his fans. And all that's pretty obvious. Hebrew patriarch. <laughs> the life of the artist is 
often in conflict with his or her work. But the work is all that most of us have. We have to look at what he's given us. Uh, I can still marvel at his work. And not just the early funny films. I admire most, oh gosh, Shadows and Fog and Zelig. If I were still teaching adolescence, uh, if I had a film club, I would start with those two films, coursing the literature of film. How do we read a film? What I loved about Shadows and Fog. Yes, it was a wonderful movie. It's all about the paranoid climate in which we live now. Uh, there is a killer scene. A group of women in a whorehouse. Yes, uh, <laughs> a group of women in the whorehouse. It was Kathy Bates and Jodie Foster. And who else was there then? I think we had... The best of them, yes. Uh, Robin Mia Farrow, of course. <laughs> yes. Uh, in Shadows and Fog, she's a uh, lady trying to be a mom. She rescues a baby. Save the babies. I guess that's on target for Mia Farrow. Uh, Malkovich plays the male, a reconstructed male. He learns how to love the mother and child. <laughs> anyway. Shadows and Fog has an, what is it? It has that atmosphere and it uses um, the music from Three Penny Opera, my favorite, favorite, favorite. I use it for my theme song here. You know, Kurt Weill's uh, operetta, Three Penny Opera, Kurt Weill and Berthold Brecht. They, uh, they wrote Penny Sweet. They wrote Three Penny Opera back in the day. Let's see, when was that? It was between the world wars. Mm -hmm. Berlin, the Weimar Republic. <laughs> That's sort of familiar these days. Anyway, Zelig is a terrific film about the loss of identity. You know, uh, <laughs> Woody Allen plays a character who simply dissolves, becomes the people that he is with. I guess they're trying to tell us how mass communication uh, has stamped out the individual. The individuals out in the cold, we have nothing but a collective sensibility. I think they call that the culture of celebrity. One actor or one role or persona represents millions of human beings Yes, how many people are living through, let's see, Angelina Jolie and maybe Brad Pitt? Ah, uh, Oscar Levant, yes. I was watching Oscar Levant this morning. He said, yes, he said, Genesis or Synthesis. I love that, Genesis or Synthesis. I guess it's a synthesis. We've melted everything together, and now we have... Uh, personas, not just ingenues. Uh, I guess we need them. Anyway, I think that the art of Woody Allen is the, uh, the biggie. He seems to be the winner. Seems to be the, the winner of the, uh, top dog award for this season. Diane Keaton accepted his award. She sang a perfectly dreadful song. <laughs> God bless her. 
I guess it was a, I guess it was an effort. She says that they are friends now. They were lovers, but friends last longer. That kind of thing. She was dressed in black tie, no jewelry. Immediately after her uh, little speech, her acceptance speech for Woody Allen, there was an ad for facial oil. <laughs> yes, Woody in absentia. Ah, it was a relief to know that Woody did not break the mold. He didn't show up. Europe is now more his home than the United States or even New York. He is on the world stage. Ah, yes, Paris at midnight. Kathy Bates as Gertrude Stein. I tried to appreciate that, but there was something missing. Woody, Woody Allen is our auteur, and like old Charlie Chaplin, he owns his own work. He's the writer, the director, and often the star. <laughs> it's the opposite of Orson Welles. I think Orson Welles had a uh, had the uh, final cut on his first film. After that. After that, he couldn't pull it off, and he had to take orders from the money men. <laughs> anyway, it's Woody Allen's game now. I have some wonderful essays from the old days in which I tried to figure out uh, where Woody was going. This essay is called Whether Woody, I remember... I was trying to figure out whether he could make the movie he promised to make. He wanted to make a brilliant movie, he said, about the Holocaust. <laughs> anyway, here's Molly Haskell in an interesting book called From Reverence to Rape. It's back in 1974. She's writing about Woody Allen, and she writes, Like the masochist, the comic, or the idealist, misogynist, creates a woman who will quicken the pulse of his own self-hatred, who will, in her unapproachable perfection, justify his misogyny, and if he is an artist, simultaneously shape and fuel his art. That's Molly Haskell. She turns up on some of the, uh, some of the movie channels, you know give advice to those guys who introduced the movies uh, in Stardust Memories back in 1980. I think my most favorite, favorite, favorite line, except the one about uh, Ozymandias Melancholia, my favorite line in Stardust Memories <laughs> is Woody Allen saying, intellectuals are like the mafia. They only kill their own. Life is a tragedy for those who feel. It's a comedy for those who think. You know, when those extraterrestrials descend to Earth in Woody Allen's film, Stardust Memories, their message to him is that if he wants to do something to help mankind, he should tell funnier jokes. Human comedy is more profound than tragedy. In tragedy, we die, and it's very sad. In comedy, we avoid death, <laughs> and that's even sadder. Uh, the critics didn't care for Stardust Memories. I loved it. Never mind that Woody Allen is the definitive American auteur. That time, he went off the deep end. Uh, 
The critics loved 1977's film Annie Hall. Got all the Academy Awards, screenplay and actress and best picture, Diane Keaton. It was charming and sentimental. And I guess he was saying that inadequate relationships are better than none. Let's face it, they're all we've got. Uh, the three pictures that followed Annie Hall were the ones that Woody Allen allowed himself to experiment in. Uh, his intellectual promise did kind of come up to the surface, but then he lost a chunk of the audience. Uh, Stardust Memories was preceded in 1979 by Manhattan. Terrific, yes. Gershwin music, angst for the memory, and interiors in 1978. Stardust Memories is all about the past, about uh, what it us. It uses the language of images, images that are familiar to those of us who have been going to the movies for half a century or more. T.S. Eliot once said that poor poets borrow great poets steal. Several other poets said that, too. <laughs> yes, poor poor filmmakers are derivative, yes, derivative derelicts, some of them, but, uh, uh, yes, the theft, the theft, that comes from, let's say, Woody Allen stole directly from Angmar Bergman and uh, Federico Fellini, I kind of think of those those guys, Fellini and Bergman and Woody Allen, as Trinity time. Oh, the existential anguish. Oh, the perceptions of women. Did their mothers really hate them? Or did their mothers really love them? <laughs> yes. D.H. Lawrence said his mother loved him. And, uh, uh, let's see, who was it? Uh, Oh, an awful guy. He was a lover of Anais Nin. He said that uh, he hated his mother, and it comes out to the same thing, of course. Uh, uh, I see little little um, Angmar Bergman in his cap and Fellini in his dramatic cape, and Woody Allen has no props at all, only his tragicomic self, an actor in search of an author. <laughs> Fellini's Eight and a Half is the model for Stardust Memories. There are uh, scenes of childhood ghosts. Ghosts. Mustn't be a ghost. The haunted seacoast village where world-famous filmmaker Sandy Bates, that was Woody Allen, is the center of attraction at a film festival. Yes, that's where he suffers from what he calls Ozymandias Melancholia. He is tied to three women. Each one uh, is formed to disillusion him. The bitter dregs at the bottom of love's cup are offset at the end of the film by the memory of a moment of grace, of a stardust memory of love's refrain. In his search for life's essence, Woody rejects jazz heaven, follows Bergman and Fellini into reverie, to recall the one perfect moment, that glimpse of the infinite. Uh, something like Fellini's peacock in the snow in Amarcord, or the vision of that servant, Anna, 
at the end of cries and whispers. Oh, Engmar Bergman's cries and whispers when she reads the diary of the dead Agnes. And yes, the dead Agnes. <laughs> In her little diary, she recollects one day of perfect happiness. Anyway, in the movie Stardust Memories, we learn that uh, Woody Allen's truest love, Sandy Bates' truest love, forgot to take her lithium, and now she's lost. Apparently gone mad and locked up. Uh, <laughs> somehow we feel that she's let him down. Allen's more obvious misogyny is evident during a scene at his sister's house when he comments on uh, one of her friends, apparently her friend, failed to resist a gang rape. The sister's friend is fat and phlegmatic with bruises on her face. Uh, when she shrugs and says, no, she didn't try to resist, Alan becomes flippant. <laughs> the audience booed. Louise Lasser has a bit part in the movie as Alan's secretary. She's very overweight in the picture, looks much stronger than she did in uh, her Mary Hartman days when she was all teeth and hair. We see her only once, backed by a huge blow-up of Woody Allen's face. Louise Lasser was married to Woody Allen for five years, so I suppose there's a family joke in there somewhere. <laughs> anyway, uh, I have a lot more in these essays and reviews about his other films specifically. Uh, as the years and the films pass by, Woody Allen has come to care more for thought than he cares for people. Uh, <laughs> in a Midsummer Night sex comedy, one of the characters says, the ghosts of Shakespeare are more real than any of the people I know. The music of Mendelssohn helps the mood in in that film, Midsummer Night's Sex Comedy. Uh, that film is set in the early 19th century. Or was it the early 20th century? Gosh. It explores Alan's eternal themes of sexual inadequacy and incompatibility. Very gentle this time. Uh, not much satirical bite. Woody makes his usual distinction between sex and love. You know, sex alleviates tension and love causes it. That's, that, that's his favorite line. He attempts yet once more to distinguish lust from love. There are moments of reflection, but no grand passions as there were in interiors, right? Uh, Woody's Midsummer Night's Dream Girl is Ariel, a spirit of the air, played by Mia Farrow, soft and shallow in lacy dresses and hair that floats like gossamer cobwebs. <laughs> yes. Oh, that is certainly symbolic. Perhaps it's even a little sad. Uh, uh, as always, Alan is searching for the lost moment, the face missed in a crowd, the remembered bliss of some amniotic ambience now lost to him forever freud called it called it oceanic feelings he does come to a conclusion i guess it's that dreams are all we have all that uh, we can hope for uh, after death 
the best that can happen is to become a spirit of the air, a metaphysician without a message. Ah, Woody Allen longs for the lost simplicities of old Will Shakespeare. He quotes from The Tempest, Act 4. Scene 1, lines 156 to 158. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. This has been Jennifer Stone deconstructing Woody Allen. I'll be back on the air next week at the same time. Until then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Drop the presents the world premiere of Hemorrhage, a dance installation that sits at the intersection of a new San Francisco and world politics. The all-female cast uses explosive drumming, dance, and theater to examine the dismantling of the Mission District through evictions and displacement. The exciting new show looks at how San Francisco and world politics overlap, from gentrification to global warming to the rights of women. Set in a junkyard on the outskirts of town, these ten women dance and drum their nightmares and dreams around this current state of affairs. January 24th through February 8th at Dance Mission Theater in San Francisco. For more information and tickets, please visit dancemission.com or call 415-826-4441. These shows are a benefit for Dance Brigade's community outreach programs in what is left of the mission.